I would go into a comic book shop and invariably there'd be that one doofus in the corner bitching about this effect, that effect, this movie, that movie. You know, they existed. You know, today that jerk probably has his own show on Channel Awesome, you know. <laughs> Radio Drome. Welcome to another Thursday night on Radio Drome, the show that never has had a budget because we don't make any money. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, even though he wasn't here last week, so that's technically a lie, Peter, Serbian Canadian, boy is that weird, Gajic. I'm always here, sometimes. Cecil, because it's Mother's Day that we're recording this, and since he's completely whipped, he had to go to his mother in law's for Mother Day, Mother's Day. Fred Fritz is sitting in for Cecil this week. Greetings. That's it? Just greetings? I, I had nothing prepared, I'm afraid. If you guys want to prepare something, like a special night, special evening, what you do is you go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get a special deal if you use that code. You will get 50% off of a single item. You will get three free DVDs, a free mystery gift. It's a clip bumper. It's not really a mystery anymore. It's a clip bumper. And free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. The reason I made the, the crack about the budget at the beginning is low-budget filmmaking has changed a lot in the intervening years, especially in the digital era. Now, all three of us have worked on low-budget films, short films. I worked in television, things like that. I know Fred used to work in television and all that. I want to talk a little bit about, and this is Fred's idea, so I'll credit to him, what it takes to be a low-budget filmmaker. What people who, who you know, they'll, they'll see Entertainment Weekly covering the new Avengers movie or things like that, and they don't understand what it actually takes to be a low-budget filmmaker, how much innovation it takes. Yes, there's obviously cost-cutting, just how unique low-budget film can be. Peter, you've made some low-budget films, and you do cinemasochist and whatnot. Would you call that an innovative, low-budget show? What kind of things do you have to do to get that made? Well, there are obviously a lot of processes and steps that I've uh, been sort of mastering, I guess, over the years, uh, refining certain techniques, uh, be it lighting, audio, the way I write. I, I like to give my show, for instance, sort of a... Italian exploitation Dario Argento sort of look I like using I like using color I like the way uh you know a neon light of either like a splash of red or green looks at the side that was very inspired by that uh seeing uh Escape from New York the way um some scenes are, are lit in a certain way and I just sort of went out of my way to try to recreate that as uh, cheaply and as effectively and I basically just do it using lamp lights from the hardware store and colored light bulbs which you could buy for about a dollar a piece and it's just a matter of hanging them and testing out with with the camera with angles and what works and what doesn't work it's, it's just a it's just a trial and error process you go with what you feel works and and what looks best on on camera and i've just i've refined little little techniques over the years uh with, with my microphone i i wanted something that was both kind of a prop and something that i could actually use like 
a, a prop that's that's both actually effective. Like, because I'm kind of a I've always been a, a bit of a pro wrestling fan. I've always liked how the how their microphones look with their with the symbol on, on it. And I was like, that could be something interesting for my show. But I also want my audio to be better because I I can't stand the way the onboard mic on a camera sounds. So I I wanted something that sounded clear, but I I don't I didn't really have the money for like a boom mic or or a directional mic or something like that. And I I had to buy something that was more in the $40 to $50 price range. So, you know, I bought one that was more primarily for recording music, a smaller one. It's called the Blue Snowflake. So, I decided to take that and turn it into a full mic, a handheld mic that I could that I could use and actually record with and then sync up the audio. So all of that sort of comes together in the both the the audio and the visual style and aesthetic that I that I wanted to project. I want something that has the neon lighting of like a sleazy 80s movie but also a crisp sound, something that that a commentator would actually sound like. And it's just it's just a matter of of trying little things here and there. I mean, I started out using, you know, a webcam uh, in in like the little a little dining room and you could see the kitchen in the background with dirty dishes and like my school my like university school bag and shit. So it, it's all a matter of, of of trying and trying and trying out different things and never start out like I'm not saying what I do is big, but never start out big. Never just buy all of your equipment like okay, it's all going to be good just cuz I have all this shit. No, you, you got to keep practicing and you start out small and you try out with the little techniques and over time you buy what you need. That would be my advice is only buy it when you know you need it and you know you can use it and you've already gotten practice with other stuff. Like I, I think a sort of a, looking at it in, in, a, in a training wheels kind of way, when you feel comfortable enough to evolve your product, then evolve it. Jot down little ideas, take notes, see what, what, what didn't work and what worked and then expand on it. Fred, you did Movie Apocalypse, which is obviously a show that really didn't have a, a budget the same as, you know, any of these, mm-hmm. but it looked good. Did you use your, your low-budget expertise from, I mean, you, you worked on actual low-budget movies such as Mosquito with Gunnar Hansen and whatnot, so you actually came from legitimate low-budget roots. How much did that influence the look of Movie Apocalypse? Even though it only lasted a few episodes, they looked really good. Uh, it influenced it more about in approach than actual look. Obviously, every film is different. Like Much like Pitar, I actually was doing kind of that red, blue, green thing. If you've seen my show, when I uh, during my host segments, I also did the red, blue, green, which was really popular from Argento and the Italian exploitation filmmakers, although my inspiration was from the 80s during what was called the uh, neon noir period, which was a lot of uh, futuristic movies had that look. If you've seen Trancers or, uh, uh, oh, I can't think of the name of that movie, Crime Something, Crime City, I think it's called. But there's a lot of films that have that that look. Are you thinking and, of the, the Corman Crime Zone with Carradine? That's it, Crime, Crime Zone. Zone. Ah, yes. Crime Zone. And, uh, that, but there's a lot of films, that period, that has this look. Obviously, Blade Runner kind of influenced it. It started it, and low-budget filmmakers picked it up. But the thing about video that's really interesting, and Pitar said so much. I, I'll try not to repeat what Pitar said because he spoke a lot of truth there, people. It just has a very unique vibe, a wonderful feel to it. And it really works on video today. I, I've noticed in my experience when you shoot video, one of two approaches that work the best because if you... If you shoot in the middle of these two, you get that weird, flat, 
home video look. If you've watched a lot of YouTube videos, you know exactly what I mean. It's that flat, lifeless look that just screams video. And one technique is to shoot it with lots of color. It just, I don't know, video loves color and it just pops. It comes alive. If you've seen the James Bond movie Skyfall, that won an award for cinematography and that was shot digitally. And it's the colors in that movie just pop. They're just alive. Video loves color. The other is the opposite end of the spectrum. Black and white looks shockingly good on video if you know what you're doing. I don't mean just shoot black and white and everything looks good. But if you know how to light it, it looks phenomenal. It has the silver quality and it's really beautiful. And also to second what uh, Patar said, the uh, good sound. You cannot underestimate good sound. You just can't. The sound, I don't care if it's a low budget, big budget, made for YouTube. No one likes bad sound. It's it. There's never an appropriate use for bad sound, basically. It's something you, what, people will tell you it's 100% of the film. It's not like 50-50, 50%, 50 you know, visual, 50% audio. It's 100% because nothing takes you out of a movie quicker than when you can, what they call, hear the edits. And that's when, like, you, you have the shot, the two shot of people talking, then it cuts to the close-up of the one, and the other, and you can actually hear the the white noise in the background change. You know what I'm talking about? Well, I, mm -hmm. I think when it comes to the audio, what's even worse is something like, like Showgirls 2 or a David Dakota film, where they're just using, as Peter pointed out, how much he hates the onboard shotgun mic. It's clear that they're using the shotgun mic, and you can hear the hallways echoing and things like that. And like you said, you can hear the background noise, the white noise, or what we used to call when I worked in movies, room tone. You can mm -hmm. hear that slightly change. That, to me, completely takes me out of the movie. I mean, someone like David Dakota should know better than to use the f***ing shotgun mic on a Walmart camera to make a movie he's actually going to put in a red box. That's, that's just such an amateur move. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's it's kind of shocking because these people know the importance of sound. You you can't tell me they just suddenly forgot. And it's not impossible. Uh, you just need a simple microphone. You don't even need anything really expensive. If you just use it well and you take the time, even in editing, you can save a lot in editing. Well, uh, I mean, like e e even something Peter said. His microphone, which sounds like a professional microphone, what did you say, Peter? 40 or 50 bucks is all it cost you? $40 blue snowflake uh, that's primarily used for recording music. And th that, if anything, is one of the best ones you can use because having something that can record music well will just a voice really well. Like it's going to come in crisper than most other mics would. Well, but then, you know, I'm sorry to keep on David Dakota when I'm talking about audio, but like look at his A Talking movies. It's clear. Eric Roberts. His talking cat dialogue was recorded over a speakerphone. Yeah. They literally had mm -hmm. him phone in his performance, and they recorded it from the speaker on the phone. How can you take a filmmaker like David Dakota seriously when that's what they – and I, I know what his defense would be. We didn't have the money. Peter Gajic found the money. Fred Fritz <laughs> found the money. Mm -hmm. How could you not find the money to record this properly? <laughs> it's a, and it's a voiceover, too. That's what's even more sad, is they could have found... Even, like, a karaoke mic or something would have been better. Like It was clear. I mean, Fred, you've seen the movie. That Unfortunately, the, yes. The, the, the echo and the distortion, that was over the phone, wasn't it? Wow. I, I'd be... Let's put it this way. If that was not over the phone, they shockingly found the worst mic they could. 
So it was like literally like Eric Roberts was flying back to L.A. and they said, we need some voiceover. Just do it from the plane on the phone on the plane. That that's what I, that's what I swear happened. And then with the slight reverb it's got, I swear he was in a bathroom when it happened too, because <laughs> there's a little bit of a reverb. So Eric Roberts literally phoned in his performance for those movies. Low budget filmmaking has changed quite a bit. For instance, Joe Dante once, I think correctly, asserted that color is the cheapest special effect you can ever have. Like both of you guys pointed out, you you lit your movies like an old an old Italian exploitation film, specifically like an Argento film. That's something that I've never understood about the modern low-budget filmmaking. This even goes back to the 90s with the second slasher boom. Why they all thought the absence of color, not embracing black and white, but that whole kind of saw urban legend leached out bland color palette was somehow inviting for a horror environment. Then you look at something like Dante's The Howling, and you go, no, all the beautiful lighting in that is much more inducive of a horror movie environment. Saw's all bland, washed-out look. Why do modern filmmakers hate color so much? I think it's just a trend. When you look at it, I saw it mostly starting to pop up. And yeah, you mentioned movies like Urban Legend, movies like Saw. We, We pretty much went into more of a post-production kind of thing where it's like we can just fix it in post just film it film it with whatever lighting is there in the room or outside and then we'll we'll add splashes of of green and red or blue to it almost in like a it's almost like day for night in a way but for an entire movie you're just completely changing the color palette within the editing software and i've never really liked that i think color correction is important you should color correct your video to a point if uh, too much grain or it's, it's it's too exposed looking and you want to you want to bring out some of the shadows and whatnot like that's that's always that's always good and it's always smart to try to utilize as much of what you've shot but we, we're li- what I consider to be a very post-production generation of, of film and, and you it's not only in the low budget stuff but it's also in the it's in the Michael Bay movies it's in it's in big huge movies like that where they will shoot it with almost no no real lighting other than just like you know neutral light and then orange and teal and green and blue and all this stuff into the color correction or they'll go the other way around and completely dial everything back because apparently for a horror movie to be you know too spooky or whatever you have to make it almost uh, so desaturated that it almost looks black and white you know blood looks like it's brown and skin tones look gray and just everything looks like a shitty day in seattle or something it's just awful and it's it's in a lot of recent horror movies and i i personally can't stand it uh it's something that has been been a recent occurrence and i don't understand why because yeah as as joe dante said one of the cheapest special effects is color is lighting and this is why a lot of the lower budgeted, not just horror movies, but, you know, action movies and, and the sci-fi movies that, that Frederick uh, pointed out. I, I fully agree with that as well. Movies like Transfers, movies like Blade Runner really, really add to that futuristic looking depth when you have like, you know, a, a cool neon, you know, blue light or a green light or a red light just kind of you know, shadowing one side of somebody's face. It gives it gives it such a great atmosphere. It makes it seem so much more larger than life. You know, when when you're just looking at something with a neutral light and they they've uh, edited some of the color in post, it's just, it's just boring. You you can tell exactly what you're looking at. Whereas when you use actual lighting and it's within the scene and it's actually in the frame, it, you're you're looking at that and it looks so dynamic and it always looks 
really a lot more grand scale, even with both with a lower budgeted film like Transfers or a big budgeted film like Blade Runner. Both of them almost look to have the same budget just because both of them have such solid lighting. But then you also have them going back and monkeying with stuff after the fact. Recently, James Cameron's Aliens was released on Blu-ray and they color corrected the movie to the point where James Cameron has disowned the Blu-rays because they've made his very distinct lighting and use of shadows all purple. Yeah. The Blu-rays are unwatchable. If you go and look for DVD versus Blu-ray on Aliens comparisons on Google, you'll be offended at what 20th Century Fox has done by, quote, color correcting his movie. They did it to The Abyss as well. That kind of soft blue and light gray and silver tone he had for most of most of the movie, all sort of this bland saw kind of look. And it's like you're completely destroying yeah. everything the cinematographer did, all for the sake of color correction. Really started, uh, I believe, with Seven, because Fincher had done music videos and they had he was the one that kind of started that color uh, bleaching, where they literally took the film and bleached it. It's it's a depressing film. It's it's a dark. Well, I don't. I guess depressing really sums it up. It's supposed to it's be sort of hopeless. Yeah, it's it, you're supposed to feel that sense of hopelessness. This is a dark world. This is a sad world, and it being devoid of color plays into the overall story because these characters are tired too. So it even plays into that. These aren't like young children looking to the world. These are tired men who've seen darkness, and so it works. But. You, you don't need this in every movie. I, I sort of think back to that, you know, when the comic book covers thing was going on. If if one comic book from Marvel sold very well, DC would try to mimic that look. And we see that with movies constantly. You know, I remember when Sam Raimi started to become a name, everybody had to do the POV shot, you know, like Robin Hood with the on the arrow. And it, they just jump on a trend and they just run it into the ground. That they can do all of this in post-production with their editing software. I think that's the problem. I think that's one of the things, especially low-budget movies, have lost. Now, obviously, low-budget movies have always used matte paintings and things like that, you know, stuff that has to be done in post-production. Although, in some cases, it is done in camera where you've got the actor in front of a forced perspective matte painting or something of that nature. Do you think that nowadays, low-budget filmmakers are far too reliant on fuck it, fix it in post? Instead of going, I need to figure out how to do this effect in camera. Remember when Brad Jones made the Cinema Snob movie? Remember the trailer for that? One of the selling points was practical effects. Is it sad that that had to be a selling point? An actual KNB effects man doing the practical blood effects in that? Have we gotten to that point? It seems like we have, and it's true. They they do rely way too much on, on uh, post. I can't stand CG blood. That's probably one of my biggest pet peeves in movies right now. When you see somebody get shot and you see that like that generic probably comes with the editing package like like blood spray that's so many using now, not even just low budget ones, but actual blockbusters like you'll, you'll be watching the expendables something. Yeah. Was offensive with its yeah. CG blood. Oh, my God, was it bad? Uh, I enjoyed the first two of those, but though, oh man, when Eric Roberts gets, uh, when he gets killed at the end of the first one, just, oh, the CG blood is just obscenely bad in that shot. And a lot, a lot in the second one too. But yeah, that, and yeah, a lot of uh, lower budgeted filmmakers are doing that too, where they're just using way too much of the sort of cheap CG, like, you know, CG muzzle flashes for guns, the CG blood when people get shot. Like, I really miss blood squibs. 
I, I miss squibs in movies when people get shot and you actually see their shirt explode with, you know, blood and smoke and everything. It it really draws you in. It, it captures the chaos of, of somebody being shot in a shootout where it'll it'll completely take me out of it when I can see that the muzzle flash is very obviously, you know, a, a cheap, you know, Adobe Premiere effect and the blood is like from After Effects or something. And it's just, it's blatantly obvious and it's cheap and it's lazy. It, it takes you out of the film. I think that's a change that needs to be made because I mean, it doesn't seem like squibs were ever all that expensive. Like the lowest of low budget movies have, have used stuff like that. You know, very, very low budget, almost, you know, shoestring budget exploitation films use squibs. It's like, why the hell can't can't people use the same stuff now? It's just and it's all down to laziness. They don't want to. That's like, well, we can just lay this uh, little little cheap uh, blood squirt effect from the CG program we're using and it'll be done that way. We'll just add it in and post later. It, it takes you out of it because there's no there's no weight to when when somebody gets shot. There's no weight to you know, a gun being fired. You can tell it's just this plastic thing and the guy's, you know, waving his arm up and down. They're not using blanks anymore. It just, it looks bad. It's, it objectively looks bad and it, it makes you, you feel like you're actually, it's like, this is a low budget film. Whereas if you're watching a low budget film that uses squibs and real blanks in their bullets and everything is on camera, you start to kind of go, Hey, you know, this is, I'm actually surprised that this has uh, this was made with as little money as it did because this looks awesome. That's that's the defining difference. Muzzle flashes in George Romero movies are actually animated. They were ha- they were line you know hand line animated because they couldn't capture real muzzle flashes on 35 millimeter and things and like matte paintings and all that. Do you think there is there a difference between what they're doing in the editing software now versus say the 80s or is it just a matter of degrees? Yes, it is kind of a matter of degrees. Uh, it's I'm doing a project right now, and I'm working on it, and Pitar will be happy to know I actually just today was setting up for my blood squibs that will be in the movie. Uh, I'm using the old <laughs> uh, under the shirt. I'll be doing that myself. And it's I've been looking at this a lot lately because uh, you had said at the, the opening of the show, this idea of doing this episode was mine and the reason i was thinking about it is because of this project and i've been studying a lot of youtube videos especially and one of the things i was really starting to hate was the green screen look and i think if you watch it you know what i'm talking about you can tell immediately when there's a digital effect i'm sick of green screens well and and this is to tie back into your your initial question here the green screen itself there's nothing really wrong with it. I feel that it's just, again, being misused. It's being overused. And we got to go backwards a little bit. And I was watching Raiders of the Lost Ark, and there's a shot of Indy when they're digging up the Ark. You know the scene I'm talking about? And they open the tomb, and there are clouds in the sky, and there's lightning behind Indy. And that is so obviously blue screen. And I was watching that going, wow, that... That stands out just like today a green screen would. Now, mind you, it but it was a stylistic choice. It was how it was used, when it was used. The fact that it was unreal kind of added to the atmosphere of what was going on. We were leaving reality and going into this almost biblical period. Uh, so it added something. And I, I remember you brought up about the matte paintings earlier, and I remember something that guys both like Lloyd Kaufman to Roger Corman said, that was the domain of the low-budget filmmaker, those old matte paintings, those old low-budget techniques. And once Star Wars hit and all these low-budget 
science fiction films came from major studios, they couldn't make those movies anymore. They that was their domain. That was their territory. And Hollywood started doing it because Hollywood, you know, if they wanted to shoot Rome or something, they built a freaking set and they hired thousands of people to populate them. And Hollywood went, hey, you mean we don't have to do that? We can just use a mat and blue screen it and people are okay with that? Those guys slowly out of business and they switched their business models. Hollywood's always kind of been like that, jumping on trends and, and grabbing what other filmmakers do. But as far as the digital age is concerned, it's it's a stylistic choice. I've seen it done well and I've seen it just it's hideous. It's really bad. And you cringe every time you see it. Uh, I'm with uh, Pitar again. The blood squib is the one they cannot do well. They can't. It's just that it's that thing your brain notices, whether you've had any experience with it or not. You you know, it. in fact, blood squibs are interesting because they're wrong. If you think about it, when you see somebody shot in a movie, they explode forward. That's wrong. When a bullet hits you, where it goes in is a small hole. It's where it comes out that the you know blood explodes. Our mind has been conditioned from all these movies for all these years, even back to old Westerns, you know, and they and you see the explosions on their chest and our brain has been conditioned to that. And so when we see the digital squibs, we just go, oh, we we know it's it's no matter how good it is. Our brain just knows that's wrong. There's there's something wrong with that. And you're just never going to beat that practical built by hand. You know, no matter how cheeseball it looks, no matter how corny it looks, Josh, you and I were just talking about House 2, and that film's very cartoony, okay? It's got matte paintings, it's got blue screen, it's got puppetry, and I love it. I'll take that over the digital stuff any day of the week. Do you think a certain level of innovation has been lost, especially in low-budget filmmaking? When Roger Corman was going to make Battle Beyond the Stars and Humanoids from the Deep and Galaxy of Terror and all that, you know, in 19... 1980 to 1982, he had people like James Cameron, who just did way above what he thought they were going to be able to do to make these movies. Nowadays, you could do that exact same thing on your laptop. For instance, have you either of you guys seen that Australian movie, The Undead, the, the zombie movie with the four-barreled shotgun? Yes. Uh, does it have an alternate title? Uh, I've only ever seen it as Undead. Is that the one where there's like they're trying to turn zombies into like telepaths or something. No, or is that, this is uh, this is the one where it turns out that uh, aliens are involved too. Uh, no, I think the the one I'm thinking of is Wormwood Road or or something. It's well, all it's another Australian zombie movie. I thought that might have been the same one, but uh, oh. no, but I haven't seen the four barrel shotgun one. Okay, I will. First of all, I highly recommend Undead. It was way better than I thought it was going to be, and it has one of the mm. funniest lines of dialogue I'd seen in a movie of this nature in a long time. And, and <laughs> I won't ruin anything, but it's a line spoken by one of the aliens that completely took me off guard. But that entire movie was done with practicals and CGI. This was all done independently, no studio, nothing. Every bit of the CGI, most of it looks pretty decent for its time. Nowadays, you'd go, ugh, but at the time, it looked pretty good. All of it was done on their laptop. Whereas, hmm. like in Corman's days, you needed a studio facility to be able to make something like Battle Beyond the Stars. Hmm. Now you literally can do it on your laptop. So do you think some kind of innovation has been lost without having to struggle? Low-budget filmmakers kind of accidentally gotten lazy with everything you need is in After Effects. You can change the color, you can change the background, you can change the timing, you can change the speed, you can do all this stuff without needing technicians. I know it sounds like I'm just bitching, 
but I think a certain level of innovation has been lost. It, it, it's sort of like Mel Brooks went to make Young Frankenstein in 1974. He wanted it to look like an old Universal film. Nobody had made a black and white film like that in 30 years. So nobody working with Mel Brooks knew how to light black and white film anymore. He had to literally go and get all of the old Universal guys who are now retired out of retirement to teach his cinematography team how to light a film like a Universal film. Do you think we've kind of do you think we've kind of lost that like you know certain filmmaking techniques just get lost to time? Yeah, and and again it goes back to to laziness. They're lacking innovation. They're just kind of popular and following trends whereas it's nice to see that there still are filmmakers like the the Undead movie you're talking about where they they took everything and they did it on their laptop and they did it better. Obviously it sounds it, it sounds like they did it better than a lot of the the bigger studios are doing and we need that kind of innovation. We need that kind of very like the home video approach of, of somebody using exactly what they have and using it to the absolute best of their ability. Because that's the thing. I do my show from a laptop. It's all, you know, I've got USBs plugged in for the, the microphone. I'm syncing that up and I got a, a light here and a camera here and everything's all done from a, a relatively shitty HP laptop. So, you know, studios have, have no excuse for their laziness. And I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm better than anybody, but I, I'm clearly putting in uh, enough effort, you know, and enough uh, desire to make it look a certain way and to have a certain aesthetic. And I obviously don't have, I seemingly don't have the money to do it, but I'm still able to do what I'm setting out to do with with uh, visuals and with audio. So if, if you can make a movie that way, which clearly these guys did, they made it on a, on a little laptop and they, you know, they did their in-film effects and they did the post effects, you know, using Premiere or whatever. If somebody could just use a little laptop like that, then there's there's no excuse. Innovation still exists. It's just laziness is overshadowing a lot of other films that are coming out. There's no doubt that when you think it's easier to do it one way that's the way most people will take. They want that easier route and things are lost and they're lost over time. The thing is, uh, this all comes back to what I talk about a lot and that's just storytelling. It's about basic storytelling. And a lot of the times I feel that the, the real issue lay with the script, the story itself, the dialogue, the, the way the characters are written. I mean, go back and watch Battlestar Galactica. Effects from the 1970s were very cheesy. There's a lot of movies I love where the effects are very cheesy. I mean, they look like models. You know, we're saying, oh, that looks like a digital effect. Well, those models look like models. There was something in the way they told the story that made us suspend our, uh, our disbelief. We wanted to. Um, they hired real actors who could deliver those lines. Uh, the one I like to bring up a lot is, I can't remember the actress's name, but she played Mon Mothma in Return of the Jedi. And she delivers the the speech, and then at the very end, she just sort of looks off camera and goes, many Bothans died bringing us this information. And it's a little throwaway, okay? But it brings weight to this ridiculousness. I mean, you're saying, what the hell's a Bothan? It even comes down to, like, classic Star Trek. Watch what is arguably the worst episode of classic Star Trek, Spock's Brain, the season three premiere. One of the dumbest, most poorly written concepts you could you can imagine, where an alien race literally steals Spock's brain. But then watch DeForest Kelly as Dr. McCoy. He is selling this as if he is, if he is in fucking Lawrence of Arabia. It didn't matter that this is probably the stupidest dialogue he's ever had to spout. He sold it. Yeah, I mean, commitment. Uh, commitment to whatever it is you're doing. Th that's a little, 
you're talking obviously something a little more fun, uh, but yes, essentially it's the same basic concept. There was a different approach. That's what I said at the outset, that it's about approach. It's about kind of where your heart is going into this thing, finding like-minded people. That's a technique, again, I think is lost, is maybe these kids today, they're they're doing it by themselves because they're everybody's doing it by themselves. Uh, everybody's hiding in their bedroom. Everybody's talking to their camera. And it's a little harder. You would think it'd be the opposite, but it seems to be a little harder to find people who are like-minded. When I was doing Movie Apocalypse, I was bumping into people all the time who could have helped, but they doing their own thing. That uh, That happened a lot. There wasn't a lot of people that wanted to work with someone else. And I've like I've gone to other people's projects and the same thing happened. We'll talk to people. No, that's all right. I'm doing my own thing. It's it's really difficult. We're we're becoming more isolated from each other, it seems, as this technology advances. And nobody wants to sort of pitch in and do that group effort anymore. The more I study film from the period that I love the most, it seems like there really was a group effort into all my favorite movies. It wasn't just John Carpenter for instance, who's one of my favorite filmmakers. You know, there was his friends, his little group, and those films were the greatest at that period. And then as those other guys went off and did their own thing, it seems like Carpenter's films became less and less and less. That seems to be with all film. And I don't care if you're doing a YouTube video, if you're doing a big Hollywood film, it seems like when there's a passion to it, when there's a group of... Look at Lord of the Rings. I mean, that's a big budget series of films. And they're wonderful. And there's a heart to them. And there's an integrity to them. And everybody involved really cared. See, Uh, I'll disagree with you on that. Like even Viggo Mortensen pointed out how... Peter Jackson was far more interested in the special effects and the battle scenes than he was about the emotional depth of the characters. And that's what I that's why I don't like those movies. I consider them vapid and void of anything worth worth getting invested in. That's well, just a I'm difference gonna, of opinion. I'm gonna disagree completely on that. I mean, if you look at the scale, the investment, it the practical effects the, the usage of the effects, there was a passion to bring out a world. Okay. And it it really just comes alive. And they hired real actors to do the roles again. And it, it harkens back to a period. I'm, I'm not going to sit here and defend Lord of the Rings because that's not even the point. The point is, is that it's it's a group effort that people come together to do. And there's an approach to it. There's a style to it. It's not something you can generally do alone. Those guys that did Undead, that was a group of filmmakers. And again, that's the way it seems to happen. If you've ever read the story of the evil dead, how they made that movie, it was several friends and they just hunkered down for that period and made a movie no matter what it took. And there's the story you're not hearing anymore. You're not hearing about that group of filmmakers who got together and persevered. I'm not saying at all. Obviously there are still people trying, but not like it used to be, not even close. Mm. So I would say it really is more about the approach to the filmmaking than even the tools. Well, speaking of both of those, what about how times have changed, formats have changed, and how HD is sort of made those things we love, such as blood squibs and practical effects, more difficult to accept to a modern audience? For instance, when the Ghostbusters trailer came out, one of the first criticisms of it was, how in 2016 do the CGI ghosts look faker 
than the 1984 ghosts, which were practical. You know, you guys both know, I am totally against this movie on every level. I can't stand Paul Feig's work. I can't stand the cast. I think this is a disaster, but I will give it some credit. I will be fair. Paul Feig said, in the HD era, you cannot do the effects like they did in Ghostbusters because they would not hold up. And unfortunately, I think he's right. Look at how practical effects, sets and whatnot. Go, go and try and watch an old Deep Space Nine episode on Blu-ray. You can see all of the bald cap lines. You can see all of the sets where they're riveted together. All this stuff you could not see even on DVD is also clearly visible. HD has unfortunately sort of changed the game to where CGI is almost the only option. Unless you have everything thrown into a practical you're going to see the lines on it and whatnot. Do you think that just the emerging times have sort of doomed the things that we loved? I wouldn't say doomed them. Honestly, I think that's just kind of a kind of an excuse on uh, what's what's the director's name for the Ghostbusters remake? Paul Feig. Paul Feig's he's making excuses. You you can still do just because you can see the line of a bald cap or or maybe it's a little more obvious that it's an effect. It's always going to obviously be an effect. Just because cameras don't have as much of a soft film focus to them anymore doesn't mean that you can't still film movies that way. I've seen plenty of films shot digitally that have like a great film look to them. Like if you look at the works of, say, in terms of uh, like recent films, like a, like a Nicholas Winding Refn shoots his films in a very soft focus 80s-like way, and he obviously uses di- digital, and he uses or- a lot of color and a lot. Peter or Don Coscarelli for John dies at the end. Yeah, that's a great looking film. And it's a very, very 1980s, early 90s looking film. And it's clearly shot on digital. And I think it's it's just an excuse like, oh, well, oh, those effects look too phony now when you no, they don't. They absolutely they'd look they'd still look cooler. It would look better. The ghosts would look better if they did it the way they did in the first movie because the effects that I've been seeing for the new Ghostbusters movie, given those trailers, it looks like something out of a, a PlayStation 1 or PlayStation 2 game or something. Like, it's not even not even that it's CG. I don't mind CG. It's bad. Like, they're clearly not putting in. They're not hunkering down, as Frederick said. Like, yeah, it, it is about that that team of filmmakers that get together and they make and they create and do something memorable. It's like what I do with my friends as well, and it's a much uh, smaller scale, obviously, but the projects that we have worked on, be it like little things we make when we're drunk or, you know, we take a... We take the summer to, to do like a Friday the 13th fan film or whatever. It's all of us getting together and really trusting each other and really putting in that effort with uh, the people doing the acting and the directing. You know, you know, Joey and I would do some co-writing and, you know, I would direct certain scenes. He would direct certain scenes. I'm better at, let's say, choreographing like uh, like more of a stunt driven or action driven scene. Like I, I'm, I'm really into those uh, techniques of like the old 70s and 80s martial arts set up angles and you know making a punch look a lot harder than it really is and and shooting somebody in an angle where they look even more menacing than they actually are um it's all that combined effort it's taking everybody's strengths and and putting them together it's just it's just excuses nowadays i wouldn't say that 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 hd is dooming anything if anything it should be driving people to make even better practical effects and to to care to make it look even better than it actually does instead of going oh well, eh, we look too obvious and fuck you fuck you and fuck your movie that's all i have to say on that well, like as in all things, there's there's a little bit of truth to what Fig says. It it does reveal everything. I, I was just watching Goldfinger 
the other day, one of arguably of the best Bond movies from the 1960s, and it's on Blu-ray. Looks beautiful. And there were a few shots where you could see very clearly the dividing line of the mat and where the camera was uh, craning down to reveal Bond as an explosion happened in the background. And I mean, it, we're talking glaring. Okay, so yes, time has changed it. I'll echo what Pitar said. You, you you rise to the challenge. You try to do something better. I mean, when Tom Savini came along and was doing his effects, you know, he said the greatest compliment he ever got from his mentor, uh, which I believe was Dick Smith, was he called him up after he saw one of his movies and said, how'd you do that? And that's what, you know, again, it's that getting your hands dirty and getting in there and trying and doing it. I mean, Kermit the Frog is a piece of felt, okay? It's it's just a piece of cloth and a ping pong ball cut in half for eyes. And it is one of the most beloved characters around the world. He's alive it, to many people. It, he is. It's, it's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's a literal character, a literal person. I don't want to say person, but you know what I mean. A little it, That's a live living being to somebody. He's a little, fr he's a live and, frog. And that has to do with character. It has to do with what Jim Henson put into it in, in from his heart. And that's what brought that character and all those characters from the Muppets alive. If you've seen the show Farscape, Farscape was that concept of the Muppets, but put into like, what if we did this as adult science fiction, like, like the dark crystal. And it's the same thing. They're just puppets. And yet, they feel like real characters to you. Same with <laughs> Yoda and all these characters. And what did people love in the new? They preferred the puppet to, you know, the CG, although they they screwed up the one puppet to be fair. It looked terrible, but that was because they didn't make, you know, make a good puppet. It, it's again, it's about that heart. It's about that integrity. And yeah, they can definitely rise to the challenge and just do better. And I'll leave off on that. Do you think that people... And I, I'm talking millennials, younger people, because it, it's kind of funny when we talk about the younger audience now. We forget. I'm 41. Fred's older than me, and Peter is <laughs> only a little younger than me. We forget sometimes that just because we remember it so fondly, the younger generation won't. For instance, black and white. My son, when he was when he was growing up, was right when The Outer Limits first came to DVD, the original 60s show. So I, I, I had had all the Outer Limits VHSs, but, you know, I'm watching him on DVD before he would go to school in the morning, and he told me point blank, stories are interesting, but I just cannot watch black and white. Do you think there is kind of a generational angle here? Maybe us loving practicals, these kids, and I use that term loosely, who have only grown up in, or have grown up only in the digital era, that practicals look as weird to them as CGI looks to us. To be fair, can it be just a generational thing too? Could very well be a generational gap. They're used to more uh, computer graphics and high definition or whatever, but I think at the same time, it's it's an arrogance to, to kind of look down on something just because, oh, well, I'm not used to this, therefore just I it's unwatchable to me. I, I don't like this black and white or, ooh, that little puppet thing or Muppet or, or you know, that effect that looks cheesy and rubbery. And, uh, it's like a smug way to see it because, you know, as if people can't tell that something is CG. If anything, to me, CG is the most obvious looking effect. Know exactly what you're looking at. It was made by a computer. I never, ever question how a CG effect was done. I don't need to because I know how it was done. A couple guys sat in a room, a bunch of computers, and they animated it. 
Whereas if you see a practical effect and it's like a particularly, particularly good one, like, you know, like a Tom Savini gore effect or something, and it, it looks really realistic, like you're really believing that somebody's getting their head hacked off right now or something. And you kind of sit there and go, how did they pull that off, you know, without hurting the actor or, or by making that look so real? Like, I know that it's an effect, but how was that done? We don't get that anymore. People can make CG as like realistic looking as they want or whatever, but you're never going to hear how was that done because we know how it was done. It's animated. You know, there's not really any any mystery there. It's, it's somebody acting opposite a green screen. That's what I miss. I, I miss being truly taken you know, by a movie, uh, not only appreciating the effort that's being put into it and, and the effects that I'm seeing, but that question. You know, seeing seeing somebody's effects work and going, how was that done? And that's something that I think, because I don't want to say the younger audience, because technically I kind of am the younger. I, I am part of the younger audience. I'm 27 years old. And I know, but I know plenty of people my age that look at the types of movies that I watch and go, why are you watching this shit? And I'm like, because I like it, because I appreciate it. And they, it's that lack of appreciation and that abundance of arrogance. Is it kind of funny how... In the 80s, they had to do physical effects to make the effects of what it would look like on a computer, like Escape from New York's New York skyline grid layout, which was a lot of people thought was really early CG when obviously John Carpenter couldn't afford that. So James Cameron actually built the city, painted it all black and outlined it in green. Is it kind of funny that you used <laughs> to have to use practicals to emulate a computer? <laughs> that was, uh, I always thought that was, and yeah, I, when I, when I first saw Escape from New York or even until recently, cause I only found, found out about that recently. I did think it was like animated or early CG or something. So that's, that's, that's pretty cool that they, that they put in that effort to, to make it just look like a simple computer grid. Well, movies are, people forget that at the end of the day, I think it was Sam Raimi that said this and he's absolutely right. Effects are magic tricks. All right. That they they're an illusion. That's all they are. And again, they're a slave to the story. And that's their purpose. They're there to fool you. Part of it is disbelief. Nobody goes to a mat. Well, I don't know about this generation, but nobody generally goes to a magic show and thinks, OK, hail Satan. They made it the person disappear or saw in half or whatever. You know what I mean? It wasn't real occultic witchcraft in other words it's an illusion we know that Penn Jillette talks about this ad nauseum it's that suspension of disbelief and you sit there and you watch the magician magician and you're thinking okay I'm gonna catch him and uh crap how do you do it Penn and, and Teller actually even had a whole show remember that was all about fooling them yeah fool us so the yeah. whole idea was if you can do your your illusion and we can't figure out how you did it you get a ton of money yeah, and it's, again, it's that suspension of disbelief. You want to be fooled. Nobody sits in a movie theater, generally speaking, and sits, and I want to see The Wires, and I want to tear this movie apart. There are probably are some YouTubers that are like that, and that's what I think the people in this generation that Patar is talking about. But guess what? They existed back in our day, too. They, they just, there wasn't an internet for them all to share. I would go into a comic book shop, and invariably there'd be that one doofus in the corner bitching about this effect, that effect, this movie, that movie. You know, they existed. You know, today that jerk probably has his own show on Channel Awesome, you know? <laughs> you know, they've <laughs> always existed. They've always existed. And the simple fact is that there's there's the two divisions of people. There are people that uh, love movies and there are people that are film lovers. OK, and 
to be fair, not everybody's in that category of film lovers. We're film lovers. All right. We're going to set out. We're going to hunt for that obscure film. We're going to go out and look for it, whether it be, you know, hunting it down on the Internet or going to a flea market or whatever. OK, yeah. you can't expect every Tom, Dick and Harry and Susan to go out and do that. All right. It's it's something we have a passion. It's just a matter of love and appreciation. And I think most people, they just don't go out and hunt for it. I think most people do feel as we do, though. They love to sit there, watch a movie, and just let it wash over them and get fooled by the effects and be taken by the characters and care when this character dies and this character finds true love. And I think that's still there. It's still the beating heart. There's just a separation. There's a much more what's the word I want to look for a nihilistic approach. It seems today where there are those who, you know, they're the deconstructionalists of today and they want to tear it down by saying, see, this is this and this is this. And it's like, well, no kidding. You know, do we really need a guy to tell us a bad movie is bad? I mean, <laughs> really do we need videos of somebody teaching us why that's funny? That's ridiculous. Nobody needs that. It's just become sort of its own weird niche slash genre i guess people will always just love a good story gotta tell a good story and it's gotta come from a storyteller and has to come from somebody with a desire and a heart and i, I know i'm repeating but that it just keeps coming back to that again a, a generational thing for for instance nowadays i i saw a relatively modern review a couple of years now of 1985's to live and die in la and all they could talk about was how cliched the story is, how cliched the characters are, how cliched the direction is. And I'm, th and I'm going, that's because this guy, because To Live and Die in L.A. is about a, guy, a cop, a, a, a law enforcement officer who's killed one day before retirement, and his young brash partner tries to get revenge on the killer, but he's saddled with a buy-the-books new partner, and they have to go off the books, and they can only solve the case once they've been taken off the case. And you go, oh my god, that's every 90s cop movie ever. But what, the, what these reviews and these younger audiences forget is, this was the first movie to do that. These were not <laughs> cliches. When to live and die in L.A. was made, God damn it! All he could talk about was how cliched it was, and not put it into the context of you grew up with all of the ripoffs, so you forget how how good the original was. Like Citizen Kane, is it the greatest film ever made? No, it's not. Orson Welles pioneered filmmaking techniques, almost are unmatched in today's era. Things he did in in the 1940s are almost impossible to recreate in that level of detail today. Yet when people look at Citizen Kane, they're like, overblown crap. I think there is kind of a generational thing when it comes to what they're raised on. Like if you do, if you see all of the To Live and Die in L.A. knockoffs before To Live and Die in L.A., I guess to you then it's a cliched claptrap, isn't it? It's, uh, it's what a lot of... Um... They they like to consider themselves critics or reviewers, but eh, they're they're just they're snarks. They're they they cherry pick shit like that, uh, where they go, this is cliche. And you you said you said enough just by simply stating it was one of the first types of movies to do that. So how would it, how would that movie be cliched? The fact that they're they're not taking that into its actual context, they're just they're cherry picking that opinion. Like oh, this was done already. This is cliche. You're a fucking cliche. They're all cliches. They're all doing the same goddamn thing. How many shows on YouTube are there of guys just sitting in front of a camera going, oh, this is really bad. Oh, it's a bad effect. Stop sucking Doug Walker's dick. 
we've already covered the YouTube people that do this. Uh, so I'll just say, yes, um, look, there's always going to be a generational gap. You'll, you'll never escape that. That will, that, that'll never go away. I think it was Roger Corman that was talking about when you, you know, you aim for make films, you aim them at young people essentially, uh, because you know, they're the next generation that will, you know, rise up to make the next group of films. It, it, it's, it's something that will never go away. And that's not a bad thing because yeah, we're here. We are these older fogies all complaining about, you know, get your digital off my lawn. The truth of the matter is, is you, you've got to have that next generation rise up and challenge. That's how we did get a Tom Savini and John Carpenters and all these guys that challenged the status quo at that time. You need those, that generation, you need that new group of people to come in and challenge what came before tear it down, but then rebuild it. I think most of the people that challenge it, they're people that also have a love and appreciation for what came before is all. You know, they just think it's not the end of the line. We can do something new, something fresh, take a new look at it. I read a review of, uh, this was on Amazon, of uh, Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator. Same thing you're talking about with Live and Die in L.A., where they were like, this is the cliche idea of the person that looks like the other person and taking their place, and it's like, okay, wow. <laughs> you know, arguably one of the greatest you know, uh, black and white at the dawn of the speaking film movies ever made, you know, and this, this young person is tearing it apart because of the concept of the cliche of two people who look alike taking each other's place. Uh, you're, you're just not going to escape that. That's never going to change that, that will never go away. And it, there is a good element to that. We need somebody to come along practical effects are making a comeback and there are guys like us or like brad jones did the cinema snob movie and said practical effects you know that's not going to go away completely uh, there's always going to be people that'll love it and we'll come back around to it maybe we'll have to relearn it as in the young frankenstein case there was nobody to do that type of lighting anymore uh or knew how to do that so they had to go back to the older generation and say hey teach us i think that's going to always be the case uh we're going to always tear down to rebuild, and that's just part of it. The last thing I want to talk about tonight would be the, the generational thing, remakes, reboots, etc. I saw a meme just yesterday, and I I can see where they're coming from, although I think their logic is flawed. It show, it was two pictures, one of like a 35-year-old guy in a homemade Ghostbusters costume, and then the picture next to him was a little like 10-year-old girl in a homemade Ghostbusters costume. Over the guy, it said, the new movie is not made for this guy. Over the girl, it said, it's made for her. And I kind of see where they're coming from. Remember when, when RoboCop was rebooted, they said, this is a RoboCop for a new generation. I, I think that's unfair, though, to say, like, like the new Ghostbusters, it's not made for you. I think that's a little unfair, and that only encourages a generation gap, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. That's, that's, a, really, uh, that's a really condescending way to put it the 20 30 something cis white fanboy it's for this little girl it's not for kids it's as you can tell by the trailers of this movie it's not for kids the new ghostbuster chicks like sexually harassing chris hemsworth this is clearly not meant to be a kids film neither was the first ghostbusters movie neither was ghostbusters 2 this is a, a film for the adult generation don't don't give me that this was made for little girls line of bullshit you know, my Little Pony was clearly meant to be for kids, and it's mostly adult males who watch it. Like, 
You can't just say or claim it's packaged for this this type of person. You never know who's going to end up being your demographic. You never know who's going to end up going and enjoying your film or, or you know your your show or your music or whatever. It all depends on who shows up opening day and actually sees it. That's a really mm-hmm. condescending way to look at it. That you know it's not for the adult. It's for the little kid. No, it's not. Oh, shut up. It's not for you. Then who is it for then? Apparently it's for you, but you think it's for the little girl. Don't give me that crap. It's an excuse. It's it's critic proofing yeah. is what it is. It's yeah. critic proofing. And I think it was on your last episode you were just talking about the Ghostbuster thing and how they're going to try to – if it fails, oh, it was because men are sexist and all this. And it's just make a freaking movie. Just tell a story and – you know, there's nothing about this Ghostbusters that sounds that original to begin with. They're acting like because they cast women, that's brilliant. I'm sorry. There have been great female protagonists for years. Okay. You're, you're I not. I think Ellen Ripley freaking... alone could kick all of these Ghostbusters asses. Yeah. Ellen Ripley yeah. or one of my favorite movies from 1980, Gloria with Gina Rollins. Check that movie out, man. That movie rocks. And she's tough as nails, Jack. So, and that was 1980 they keep acting like they're reinventing the wheel here or something. And they want us to be awed and to bow at their feet, kiss their asses. And I'm not going to do it. You've got to make a good movie first. All right. Don't tell me how I have to feel before I walk through the fricking door. You have to, you've got to deliver son. And that's just it. They want that excuse going in. They want that out. That if people don't like it, well, it was this and then. Oh, good grief. Grow up. All right. <laughs> Be a freaking man and just tell a story, Jack. And then we'll decide. Hey, if the movie's good, I'll come out and I'll say it. I'll say, hey, I was shocked. That was really good. I haven't seen the movie and yet I'm already being judged how I'll react before I even know how I'll react from the director. There's no, that's, that's illogical. That's, <laughs> that makes no sense whatsoever. Ever. And it's just a it's a big commentary on what's going on in movies in general now. Well, speaking of illogical, where can people find Peter if they would wish to contact him? If you wish to check out some of my some of my goofy shenanigans and my love for very, very strange, very sleazy, very violent films, uh, sometimes very interesting films. You can find me on YouTube, the Cinemasochist, Twitter at Cinematica, Facebook, the Cinemasochist, and on 1201beyond.com. You can find me there along with all my merchandise fairly soon once the site relaunches. Get get yourself some uh, Cinemasochist t-shirts, hopefully <laughs> some some sometime this year. Where can people find Fred Fritz? <laughs> Buying merchandise from Pitar's site, of course. <laughs> uh, well, uh, again, as I've always said, I'm still just uh, Facebook Movie Apocalypse on Facebook. Uh, still, you know, nothing going on, but I'm, I'm building it um, slowly. So if I build it, I hopefully they'll come. <laughs> Well, you, you can come to 1201beyond.com, and you can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold.
Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.